The Daily 202 Podcast is brought to you by Indeed.com. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed, the number one job site in the world, is here to help. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Daily 202. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, September 22nd. In today's news, the Manhattan DA says in court that President Trump could face charges for falsifying business records and tax fraud. Trump meets with his frontrunner candidate to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg as Republicans lock down the votes they need for confirmation. And the CDC reverses its COVID guidance yet again. But first, the big idea. A former top prosecutor on special counsel Bob Mueller's team writes in a new tell-all book, Where Law Ends, that the group failed to fully investigate Trump's financial ties and should have stated explicitly in their report that they believed he obstructed justice. Andrew Weissman claims that Mueller's efforts were limited by the ever-present threat of Trump disbanding their office and by their own reluctance to be aggressive against a sitting president. The team made sure its work was logged into a computer system in a way so that it would be preserved if Trump got rid of Mueller. But Weissman says the pressure caused them to pull punches. He likens it to a sword of Damocles hanging over all of their investigative decisions, leading them at certain times to act much less forcefully and more defensively than they would have if they were investigating anyone but the president. Weissman says it led them to delay and ultimately forego entire lines of inquiry that were quite promising, particularly regarding this president's financial ties to Russia. This bothered him deeply because in America, no one is supposed to be above the law, not even the president. Here is a key paragraph from Weissman's new book, which comes out next week, and which we got an early copy of. He writes, quote, We still do not know if there are other financial ties between the president and either the Russian government or Russian oligarchs. We do not know whether he paid bribes to foreign officials to secure favorable treatment for his business interests, a potential violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that would provide leverage against the president. We do not know if he had other Russian business deals in the works at the time he was running for president, how they might have aided or constrained his campaign, or even if they are continuing to influence his presidency. Weissman was considered one of the top prosecutors at the Justice Department and had been a senior supervisor before Mueller brought him onto his team. Now he teaches at NYU Law School. In the book, Weissman lays particular blame on Mueller's number two, Aaron Zebley, for stopping investigators from taking a broader look at Trump's finances. And he writes that he now wonders whether investigators, quote, gave it their all. Weissman lambasts Attorney General Bill Barr for, among other things, giving the public a deeply misleading four-page summary of Mueller's work before the full report was released publicly. Mueller's report was far more damning than the anodyne description that Barr put out. It was upon reading Barr's misleading four-page memo that Weissman decided he had a moral obligation to write this book. Weissman is critical of Mueller himself for not stating plainly that he had concluded Trump obstructed justice, which Weissman says the evidence clearly shows. 
Weissman said in an interview on Monday with my colleagues Matt Zapatosky and Spencer Sue that he told Mueller he would have stated that conclusion in the team's final report. More critically, Weissman complains how he felt Mueller was wrong not to green light issuing a subpoena for Trump's testimony, and he also details how he personally pressed the special counsel repeatedly to do so. The office also declined to compel testimony from the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., or even to seek an interview with first daughter Ivanka Trump, who was involved in a lot of the potential misconduct described in the final report. Weissman's primary task was to lead the team called Team M, which investigated former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort for financial crimes in hopes that he'd flip to become a useful witness. Another team, Team R, was tasked with exploring whether the Trump campaign had coordinated with Russia to influence the election. And another, Team 600, was tasked with exploring whether Trump had obstructed justice. Weissman is critical of that latter team, Team 600, saying that an FBI agent assigned to it complained to him that it was, quote, pulling its punches and shooting down her views. And Weissman alleges that its leader, Mike Dreeben, another veteran former prosecutor, confided in him privately that he would not have been so mealy-mouthed about saying the president had obstructed justice. Weissman says Dreeben told him, quote, if you and I were in charge, this is not how it would read. I should say here that Zebley, Mueller, and Dreeben did not respond to our requests for comment about what's said about them in the book. Jim Quarles, who led the obstruction team, would often exclaim as he walked around the office, pardon me, pardon me, pardon me. It was a dark joke about Trump's habit of dangling pardons to people they were investigating to stop them from cooperating with the government. Weissman says that the team often joked about eventually becoming the subject of investigation itself, another sort of dark gallows humor. One of the prosecutors on the Mueller team, Jeannie Ree, even remarked that if Trump wins in November's election, quote, we all need to retain our own criminal lawyers. Weissman says that all the lawyers in Trump's own White House counsel's office would often refer to the Oval Office as the reality-free magic kingdom. Weissman also notes that neither the White House nor Congress has moved to defend U.S. elections from the new threat of information warfare. He adds that Russia's main intelligence agency, the GRU, has, quote, gotten what it had worked so hard for, a servile but popular American leader willing to overlook a threat, as he puts it, as pernicious as anything we faced in World War II or on 9-11. There is no other way to put it, Weissman concludes, writing, quote, Our country is now faced with the problem of a lawless White House, which addresses itself to every new dilemma or check on its power with a belief that following the rules is optional and that breaking them comes at a minimal, if not zero, cost. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. made a pointed case on Monday for the legality of his grand jury subpoena for eight years of Trump's tax returns and related records, saying in a brief to an appellate court that news reports alone of the president's misconduct justify a wide-ranging review of the president's business dealings. This filing marks the first time that the prosecutor has publicly suggested specific criminal charges, including falsifying business records and tax fraud, that could apply to Trump 
should the grand jury find evidence to support them. Vance's investigation includes alleged hush money payments in 2016 to two women who said they had extramarital affairs with Trump, as well as a variety of business transactions, according to a filing by his general counsel, Kerry Dunn. Dunn said the investigation is based on, quote, information derived from public sources, as well as confidential informants and the grand jury process. Dunn wrote that in particular, any false statements made to business partners would be lenders, insurers, or tax authorities about Trump's business properties, no matter where the properties were located, would be fair game for New York prosecutors to go after if the statements were made by Trump from Trump Tower or the Trump Organization's headquarters in Manhattan. Dunn wrote that false statements could lead to criminal charges, including scheme to defraud, falsification of business records, insurance fraud, and criminal tax fraud. The new filing cites reporting by the Washington Post about Trump allegedly inflating the value of his properties to lenders and investors. Now, it must be said, even if Vance receives the documents immediately, it's unlikely the contents will be made public through his office before the election in November. The subpoena was formally issued through a grand jury that's hearing evidence on this matter, and grand jury proceedings are secret. The information contained in the records could become public in open court if charges are ever brought. It is also highly unlikely anyone will be charged in connection with the Vance investigation before November 3rd. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit is scheduled to hear arguments from both sides on Friday. The U.S. Supreme Court may end up ultimately needing to rule again on this matter. Take this as your daily reminder of why judges matter. And in that vein, number two, jockeying over Trump's next Supreme Court pick ramped up Monday as the president pledged to unveil his candidate to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg by the end of this week. The momentum appears to be growing behind Judge Amy Coney Barrett of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, who met with Trump on Monday at the White House privately. Barrett is a favorite of religious conservatives. She's a law professor at Notre Dame and lives in South Bend, Indiana, a devout Catholic. She has seven children. She's already battle-tested after going through a ferocious confirmation fight in 2017 for her seat on the appellate court. But Trump aides and allies continue to push other candidates, with Judge Barbara Lagoa of the 11th Circuit considered the other top contender because she might be able to help Trump clinch Florida in the election. As all this lobbying unfolds behind the scene, Trump says he's considering three other women as well. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell began mobilizing his ranks behind a confirmation vote for Trump's nominee. Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says he thinks that vote can happen before Election Day. And it seems increasingly probable that McConnell will limit the defections to get this done, if not before the election, during the lame duck session. Number three. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention removed language on Monday from its website that said the coronavirus spreads via airborne transmission. It's the latest example of the agency backtracking from its own guidance. The agency says the guidance that went up on Friday and largely went without notice until Sunday should not have been posted because it was an early draft that hadn't been approved. Evidence that the virus floats in the air has been mounting for months, with an increasingly loud chorus of aerosol biologists pointing to superspreading events in choirs at churches, on buses, in bars, and in other poorly ventilated spaces. They cheered when the CDC seemed to join them in agreeing that the coronavirus is airborne. Although CDC officials maintain Friday's post was a mistake, Democratic lawmakers on Capitol Hill are incredulous and promise subpoenas and an investigation to figure out what's really going on behind the scenes. This change on the website on Monday is the third time that Trump's CDC 
has posted significant coronavirus guidance only to quickly reverse its stance. It's also the latest disorienting turn in a significant scientific debate with enormous public consequences for how we return to schools and offices. The debate is over whether the extreme infectiousness and tenacity of the virus is due to its ability to spread well over six feet, especially indoors, and small particles that result from talking, shouting, singing, or just breathing. Many experts outside the agency say the pathogen can waft over considerably longer distances than six feet to be inhaled into our respiratory systems, especially if we're indoors and airflow conditions are stagnant. What's clear from such cases is that while the virus surely spreads slowly in households among family members, it also spreads rapidly at indoor events that bring lots of folks together. Meanwhile, against that backdrop, an NIH press staffer is being pushed out after being exposed as a secret anti-mask blogger. William Cruz, a public affairs specialist at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told officials that he will retire after the Daily Beast revealed yesterday that he's the managing editor of the far-right website Red State, where under the pseudonym Strife, he has ridiculed the government's activity in response to the coronavirus outbreak, a job that he does from the inside. It seems, based on times that things were posted, that he was doing a lot of this writing during work hours. The Daily Beast reports that Cruz, under his pen name, called Tony Fauci, his boss, a, quote, mask Nazi, and implied that, quote, government officials responsible for the pandemic response should be executed. Other articles include one calling the Democratic governor of Nevada a mask fetishist, after Trump announced he would hold an indoor rally in defiance of that state's COVID restrictions. And the White House has also again moved to shake up the personnel office at the Department of Health and Human Services after a series of imbroglios. The Trump administration yesterday removed its top two liaisons between the White House and the Health Department. Emily Newman and her deputy, Catherine Granito, will be shifted to work full-time at The Voice of America. Newman already has spent more than three months detailed to the global media agency as its chief of staff which Politico reports has meant that Granito, who was literally an undergraduate at the University of Michigan this spring and is in her early 20s, has been in charge of the entire health department's personnel policy amidst a pandemic that has killed more than 200,000 Americans. In a reminder that personnel is policy, there are new indications that America cannot fix its N95 face mask shortage. And we have a story today that cites several experts agreeing that the Trump administration's mismanagement and incompetence are the major reasons why. And the numbers themselves are still really bad. A third of states are seeing new case numbers that are at least 75% of their peak infection numbers. The most recent 10,000 American deaths were added in just the last nine days, three fewer days than the 10,000 deaths that preceded those. On a positive note, Fewer of those infected with the virus are dying than earlier in the pandemic, and that's great news. But the ongoing addition of new cases means an ongoing addition of new deaths, and cases keep being added. In an effort to show it's taking the contagion seriously, at least more seriously than the administration seems to be, the National Football League has just fined three head coaches $100,000 apiece for violating the league's directive to wear masks on the sidelines during Sunday's games. Seattle's Pete Carroll, San Francisco's Kyle Shanahan, and Denver's Vic Fangio. Their teams were also fined $250,000 each. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, September 22nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. 
I'll talk to you tomorrow.